Welcome to the Hyper Guide Motivational Podcast. Thank you for being here today. I have an amazing guest here, Alex Cully, and, and I'm going to kind of get into this more and explain more. This podcast is going to be a little different than the other podcasts. Um, Alex has an amazing podcast. He just started this podcast about, what's about a month and a half ago, Alex? About a month and a half ago. And Alex is doing amazing things. He has a podcast called Learning the Hard Way, the Easy Way. And Alex, can you give, tell me a little bit about yourself? Um, I want to go into it. I want you to give me a little bit of your intro because you have so much insight. You're just an amazing man. So we did part one on Alex's podcast. Um, Alex, what's the best way they can hear part one? Are you on all, are you on all the um, platforms? I am. So the podcast, again, is Learning the Hard Way, the Easy Way. Uh, you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. And uh, we have a lot of fun, uh, you know, a lot of podcasts talk about great people and, and why they're so great. But we kind of flip that on its head. And each episode is interviewing uh, someone like yourself, Fig, with a lot to share, a lot of experience, expertise. And we really base the whole episode on one question. You know, what's a mistake you made? What's something that you didn't do well? And what did you learn from it? Um, so that the listeners can gain from their experience. So learning the hard way, the easy way is really about uh, learning from people who've had to learn things the hard way. And so you can avoid mistakes. And, you know, I started it, um, the youngest of three, I have two older brothers. Uh, so I learned early how to learn from others. And I remember uh, so many of their mistakes I saw and said, mm, nope, not going to do that. Uh, and that's, I think, really been a through line in my life of, you know, it's great experience is the best teacher, but if you can learn from the experiences of others, uh, I think that puts you far ahead. Yeah. So I'm going to just ask you, if you, if you really want to learn a lot, check out his podcast. They're really amazing. Um, some are a little shorter, some are a little longer, and it's kind of based upon where it goes in the interview, but you know, what I love about the podcast, and I was telling Alexis on his podcast as well, is that is is it's Alex made an investment on interviewing people about their experiences so that you can learn from their mistakes. And and it's gonna motivate you to be a better person at working at home. And I really, really love that. Hey Alex, can you tell me really quickly, you know, I know you've got the podcast, but can you tell me about the, what do you do for the work part of your life? And then where you went to school? And I'd really like to know that and let the audience know. Sure. Um, yeah. Podcaster, not my full-time job. Uh, so I'm uh, the executive director of a consulting firm called the Institute for Executive Development. Uh, we're based in Las Vegas, uh, where I'm from. Uh, but we have clients uh, in Las Vegas and throughout the country. Uh, we work with uh, typically senior level leaders, executives uh, in all industries uh, and sectors, public, private, nonprofit. And really our business is focused on three specific areas uh, of expertise that we offer. Leadership and team development, strategic planning, and executive coaching. Uh, by way of education, uh, I always kind of thought I would go into marketing and advertising uh, so uh, I want it to be, you know, one step ahead, though. So instead of just going to business school like everybody else, I started with psychology. 
And I figured if you could understand people's motivations and why they buy, then you could sell them stuff better. Uh, so I got to school, I studied psychology. Uh, I also got into political science. You know, what's politics but the selling of people and ideas? Uh, but I recognized pretty early in, in undergrad, I was a little bit like a fish out of water. Uh, every one of my psychology classes were going on to be a therapist or a clinician, things like that. All the political science people wanted to be lawyers or in government. And so my interests were kind of at the cross-section of that. Uh, when I graduated, I knew I needed to still get a little smarter. So I ended up uh, going to graduate school at uh, the University of Southern California, fight on. Uh, in a master's of applied psychology and really had kind of two, two dual tracks on one side was organizational psychology. Uh, and on the other was consumer psychology. Um, so I got exposure to both. I ended up, uh, focusing more on consumer sales, marketing, advertising, and, uh, went into market research after that. Uh, when I finished school, I lived in Los Angeles for, for about a year working in a market research firm. And it was a small firm, but we had some big name clients. And I remember I was doing these very interesting uh, things, interesting projects, uh, but I still wasn't uh, fulfilled. And uh, a day that'll sort of change my life, uh, I remember is I had asked to create a training for other people at my level to do this kind of one thing related to um, screening for focus groups. And I remember... I had more enjoyment creating that training than I did doing the actual job. Uh, and so when that happened, I, I had a realization that, you know what? I am in the wrong industry. Um, so I transitioned. I, uh, at the same time, my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, ironically was starting as a therapist uh, in graduate school. And so I knew I was moving home. And uh, I was looking for work kind of in the organizational psychology field training. And someone who you know very well, uh, Professor Cully, who is my dad, uh, and started the business. Um, I kind of told him and in his way, he said, oh, very interesting. Didn't say anything about it. Uh, I came back uh, into town a few weeks later and uh, still working remotely. And he, uh, you know, had sat down in his office and he, started to talk for about 45 minutes uh, about this big project he had, you know, it was going to require a lot of research and he, he needed help. He was going to hire an outsider, but because of my skill set, um, you know, he thought it would be a good fit. And Fig, I'll tell you, I have never seen my dad so flustered uh, as those 45 minutes. So when he made the offer and, and offered me a, a job, I didn't even have the heart to haggle. I just took the pen, signed the thing, and and uh, that was about six years ago, and we've been going ever since. Can I ask you a question, Alex? You, you know, and we're going to get into this more. I want to know what was the biggest challenge when you first came into when you started working with your dad, with your dad, because you work with pretty massive um, public and private companies. What was the biggest challenge for you? And that's part one and part two. And I know people hate when I ask these questions, but part one is what was the biggest challenge for you? And part two, what was the, the biggest problem you saw in public and private organizations in terms of leadership? Well, the, the answer, I guess, is, is a little bit connected. Um, 
So when I started, I was 25. I'm, I'm 30 now. Um, and I thought, especially because we were working with senior level executives, uh, people who, you know, they had as much work experience as I had earth experience. Um, I thought my age was a big inhibitor. And I remember uh, in my first uh, six months or so, uh, we were working with a client, that big project kind of in the Midwest. And I was talking to, to one of the executives we worked with a lot. And she was, she was tough. I mean, she had worked uh, in some pretty uh, hard organizations uh, and no nonsense. And I remember Sharon, um, you know, hey, I, for some feedback, you know, my age, is it, does it hold me back? And, you know, she looked at me, she said, you don't get it. Your age isn't what holds you back. It's your superpower. She said, because people at our level, at the executive level, they don't get to hear from someone with your perspective in a language they can understand. And Fig, that changed my life when she said it. Because she was right. I, I recognize that, you know, I've always been someone who can fit in, uh, regardless of the age of, of the group I'm with. Uh, being able to communicate, you know, when you have, like I did, grew up with an executive coach for a dad. Uh, you know, you just learn how to speak the language early and being able to talk to people at that level in ways that they could process and understand, but share things that they don't get to hear because that's not the people they spend their time with. You know, if they're spending time with people my age, more likely it's their kids. And, and so being able to, on an even playing field, communicate perspectives of generations of, of skill sets and sets of experiences that they, they didn't understand, but, but doing it in a way that doesn't make them feel old. Um, I, I think that's uh, what's helped me work at this level. And, you know, second part of your question is what are the biggest challenges in organizations? Um, it, it's often just that it's that, you know, they talk about, well, how do we, how do we motivate our employees? How do we reach our clients? And yet the people sitting around having these discussions do not often, they're not the same age as the people they're trying to reach. A lot of times they don't look like uh, in terms of diversity, uh, gender, you know, the people they're trying to reach. And so um, in organizations, I, I found, you know, people who rise to the top, uh, they do so because they're highly qualified, they're skilled, they're experienced, but they, they got those skills and experiences and qualifications at a different time. And especially uh, post-pandemic, when the rate of change was magnified incredibly, um, the old rules don't really work anymore. And so uh, I think I found a, a sweet spot, and I've often joked I'm going to have to get a different shtick, you know, when I start growing up. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm very fortunate uh, to have the opportunities I have. And, and I've come to find from our clients, you know, they get a lot of value out of it because there's a lot of consultants or expertises out there of people who come from the same generation or perspectives or insights that, that they grew up in, but they don't often get to hear what, from someone um, that represents a generation that's the majority of their workforce, the majority of their clients or their customers, uh, and especially in a way that's strategic. So I, 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 we, we talked about this in podcast one. That's why people have to listen to podcast one is, uh, 
is, is the mirror analogy that your dad always brings up, which is when we're looking in the mirror, we're only seeing a small part of ourselves, right? We're seeing maybe 30%. So there's like, sometimes there's 70% and sometimes even more that we're not seeing as a leader and not just as a leader, but even as an employee in your organization, a lot of times we have these blind spots that we don't know our weaknesses are. How do you handle those conversations with other employees or with, like you said, very successful leaders without them taking it the wrong way? Well, so, you know, first and, and foremost, uh, I always ask before tell. You know, my, my starting point is to ask questions. And whatever I'm going to say, make sure I can connect it back to what people are interested in. So, um, you know, my wife will often joke that I don't really talk about work much uh, in social settings. But that doesn't mean I don't think about it because, you know, every person comes up to you and they're venting about their problem. They're talking. I'm thinking, gosh, I have a couple of training modules that would really be helpful. But people don't want to hear that. Right. People often don't want you to solve their problem. So before I, I give any feedback, before I give any input, suggestions, perspectives, I, I have to listen to make sure that's what they really want. Um, so that's one. Uh, two, uh, often I, I don't root what I'm saying in, in just my perspective. Uh, I root it in feedback or comments I've heard from others. So in order to get that, you have to make people feel comfortable that you're not going to uh, break their confidentiality, uh, make them feel comfortable that you're really listening. Um, I think listening goes at the heart uh, of, of effective communication. You know, the best communicators uh, are people who can most effectively listen so that they know what the best thing to communicate is. Um, I'm going to, I get to steal from your podcast right now, which is, what is the most difficult challenge you ever had in your work career? And I, and it doesn't necessarily have to be this one. Um, and then how did you overcome it and handle it? What's been a challenging thing for you to get over? And, and, and if you can be specific about, you don't have to be specific with names and all that stuff, but with the most difficult challenge you've had in terms of a failure, and it can be a, it can be a personal one or it can be a professional one. Well, of my many failures to draw from, uh, I will um, kind of just build on what I, I just mentioned. I think the times when I've gotten in the most trouble is when I shared coaching or feedback or a suggestion with someone who wasn't ready or interested in hearing it. And um, there's a, a specific time I'll tell you about. We were working with a public agency uh, here in Las Vegas. Um, they are central to the valley uh, and, and sort of, I mean, literally, they're, they're immeasurably important to what Las Vegas does. And, um, but they also are a public agency. And so with all that goes along with that. And so we, we met the leader of this um, organization. We started, as we often do, uh, with kind of a needs assessment, which included interviewing all of the top people uh, and asking them, what does the organization do well? What are its challenges? You know, what do you think is needed in the next couple of years, months, in order to continue to improve? And, and this was um, three, three or four years ago. And so, uh, you know, um, in the coming 20 decade, 2020. 
and so we did that. You know, these were 90-minute interviews with maybe 15 people. And uh, all of the input we heard, you know, there was things kind of, you know, the usual suspects. We don't spend enough time team building, camaraderie. You know, we don't have clear direction. Uh, we don't know how our part fits to the greater vision. Um, so, okay, those are easy. We can put together that. Um, but then we started to hear this incredibly consistent feedback about the boss. And it was simply this, that if you say something that the boss doesn't like, you will get put into timeout. You will get sidelined. You will get minimized. You could be the top performer. And if you uh, say the wrong thing to the boss, and, and often it was something they don't want to hear against their ideas or what they were trying to accomplish, that you know you won't get fired, but you will get sidelined and railroad, and you will just not be a key member of the team anymore. So watch out. So, okay, we we got all the recommendations together. We did a training, and that was great. Uh, we uh, made a proposal to help them develop kind of a long-term strategic plan, and you know that was got got all green lights. So this was going to be a, a multi-year turn into a multi-year engagement, big project with a highly visible organization. And uh, we, we had um, several meetings with the boss and were given, you know, sort of the report on the feedback. It, it was uh, all this different stuff and kind of right at the finish line of the deal. And then we, you know, as part of our integrity of what we heard, communicated this piece of feedback that the team had shared about, about the leader that we were talking to. And it was simply, you know, Hey, one thing that we heard that's been very consistent is that, uh, one of your areas for improvement, that if someone speaks out against an idea or doesn't support what you're trying to do, you'll minimize them. You'll, you'll sideline them, you know, you'll put them in timeout and fig, I could tell, you know, right away that that person was not ready to hear what we had to say. Uh, we had to say it because that was what they told us. We had an obligation. Um, but for whatever reason, we just missed the mark on the communication of it. And so what turned in, you know, was a multi-year project, kind of a big deal. Uh, pretty soon we, we found out we were the ones now put in timeout. And that was uh, the last meeting we ever had with that leader. We, uh, you know, the term I think is got ghosted. Um, you know, we heard from a couple of their people and kind of going on, but we never actually got communication again from that leader. And um, Sally uh, Helgeson, who I interviewed on my podcast uh, before, you know, her mistake was, was learning that you don't always get a second chance. You know, as much as you might like it, you don't always get that second chance. And I, I think, you know, from from the mistake uh, I, I made of telling someone something when they weren't ready to hear it, uh, I became intimately familiar with the idea that, no, you don't always get a second chance. And sometimes projects are, projects are just gone. So so I want to get that's very interesting to me because the irony of to me to me and I know you process this already is trying to figure out if so you're getting paid to do this job 
But the person, the people that are paying you have to understand and be ready to maybe hear things that they don't want to hear. So everything that all those people were complaining about, and we talked about psychological safety in part one, the, the leader actually, in some ways, backed up what everybody said. So, so when you were done with this, is it really, you know, I know you have to worry about the money part of it, but I know you do the work because you want to make a difference, Alex. I know that. So for me, I think as much as it would have probably hurt my bottom line, at the end of the day, I would know ethically I, I did what I was supposed to do. And ironically, this leader wasn't ready to hear what everyone else said. And he basically backed up exactly what everyone else said. And, and, and it, it's, it always boggles my mind that these leaders don't get it that they're hurting the organization more than they're helping the organization. It, it just, I don't know. How did you feel afterwards? And did you in some ways process this as a loss or did you process this as, you know what? We did what we we're supposed to do ethically. This person just wasn't ready to hear, you know, the truth, I guess, in some way. Well, um, you know, often what we need to hear the most, we want to hear the least. And if something, you know, pisses you off or makes you uncomfortable, it's a good sign that it touched on something true. Uh, so, you know, to the point of, is it a loss or, or you know, I think on a business side, of course it was a loss. I mean, we, you know, we lost the project. From a learning experience side, it's been the gift that keeps on giving. You know, I, I, I don't know that, uh, I mean, it was many years ago and, and Rick and I, we still sort of laugh about it, but there's some pain behind that laughter too. And not just because we lost the project, but because we weren't able to help that leader get better. And, you know, you have to meet people where they are if you're going to lead them to where you think they need to go. As a coach, as an organizational leader, uh, as a manager, and you talked a lot of bit about this in, in part one, um, but I think I feel, uh, bad that we weren't able to do justice or do right by the people who trusted us and shared all that. And if, if I could go back and, and have a do over, um, of course there were things that we would work to do differently knowing what we now know. Now, would we ever have been able to get the message across? I don't know. Uh, one thing I do know is that you know, what brings out my personal and professional best is working with people who want to get better, who we have a high degree of trust. They, they know at the end of the day, everything I'm doing is, is trying to help them. And, um, and I know that when I share coaching, they may not like it, but they will at least listen to it and reflect on it and take it for what it is without some sort of attributing deeper meaning. So I don't think, um, you know, I think things can be both losses and wins. And I, I think this definitely falls into that category. And, you know, it's a big example of a mistake I've made many times, uh, which is telling people things that they're not quite ready to hear. What is the biggest challenge? And I know this is a really big question here. So can you explain 
how difficult it is to change a culture in a massive system. And I, and, and I know that there's a, there's a special quote that everybody uses about culture, right? Uh, and maybe you can talk about that a little bit, but um, can you tell me what those challenges are, are and how do you deal with those challenges? Uh, well, it's, I think it has to be a multi-pronged approach. Um, you know, our, my favorite definition of culture is, is simply the way we do things around here. Uh, so first and foremost, in culture change, you have to understand that it's going to take time. Uh, as individuals, as the research shows it takes about six months to start, stop, or change a behavior, and another three to six months to turn that behavior into a habit. So a year is the absolute minimum for an individual to change a behavior and turn it into a habit. Now, when you're working with hundreds or thousands of individuals, you know, it, it gets far more complex. So when you're looking to change organizational culture, the first thing you need is buy-in from leadership that you want and understand what the vision of, of the culture you want to create is. And they're committed to following through on whatever those changes are, even when it gets tough. Uh, in public agencies, this is this can be hard because maybe there's elected officials who come in and have different visions of it. Maybe there's uh, you know retirement qualifications. People have to leave; they can't see it through. Um, so first and foremost, you need organizational leadership to buy in. I think secondly, you know, as you're going sort of top down on the change, you also need to take an approach bottom up. So. I found in organizations that you can talk to uh, different people and at every level and you hear the same thing at every level. And then you ask yourself, okay, well, if everyone thinks this, why hasn't it changed? You know, a great example is meetings. I have never met someone who doesn't say something like we have too many meetings. We, we meet too often and we don't aren't able to get enough done. So I say, well, why don't you have less meetings? Well, I don't know. They're on the calendar. Um, so making sure that you listen to people and actually hear what they're saying needs to change. As a consultant, I know that there's no idea I have that's going to be better than the people who actually work there. And the closer you get to the problem or to the front lines, the better the ideas get because those people really live and experience it. So organizational leadership bought in, then you have to get a bottom-up approach to get the ideas and the suggestions. And this is kind of like the, the wellspring uh, that you keep, keep drawing from. Now, whatever changes you're going to make, you make sure to connect it back to what people have said needs to happen. Uh, even if it was just one or two very bright people who really get it, um, they don't have to be majority consensus opinions. You just have to make sure that you've gotten the ideas from the people who actually work there. So organizational leadership, you know, leadership from the mid-level the, or the front line, pardon me, the ideas. Uh, then you have to approach, you know, mid-level management. Um, those can be huge blockers in any change effort. Why? Because they've benefited from the way it is. They've benefited from the status quo. 
And so you have to meet with those people and not leave them out of the loop, not cut them out, but meet with them and, and explain and show, here's how this will benefit you too. You know, what you talked about, understanding they may all be motivated by different things. Uh, so it has to be a multi-pronged approach. And um, I don't, you know, uh, kid myself into thinking that we're going to be able to flip the hearts and minds of everyone we speak with. In fact, that's not really so important. What's more important is that people change the behaviors. You know, my, my wife, the therapist, she, she would talk about, okay, well, what, why are you like this? What happened in your childhood? And, you know, what, what, what was your experiences growing up? I don't really, you know, that's not really so relevant for me. Uh, I am a behaviorist. I know that if you can uh, change the behavior, eventually the attitude with, will follow. You know, it's easier to act yourself into a new way of thinking than it is to think yourself into a new way of acting. And in organizations, this comes with policies, uh, infrastructure, systems, and processes. And so as you get sort of the ideas of what you want the culture to change, you, you recognize the challenges, then you have to get into the, the operational nuts and bolts and say, okay, what are things that prevent this? Um, go back to the meetings example. Well, we know that we have this weekly meeting on the calendar. Okay, well, can we turn it to every other week? Um, well, we know that whenever we schedule a meeting, it's for 60 minutes. Okay, well, can we turn those into 45 or 30-minute meetings? Um, so it's getting down really uh, to a very granular level. And at this point, we're now not the ones pushing that change. We're helping the people who work there identify and act on it because they have to have ownership. You know, if it's just the consultant, um, we're not going to stay around forever. So we really often want to work ourselves out of a job and make sure people have the skills, the tools, they've, they've learned enough and gotten collaborators with us enough that they can go and act changes on the big and the small uh, to make sure that the infrastructure, the, uh, the organizational carrots and sticks are all set up to facilitate this change effort. Um, so hopefully that, you know, is. Oh my uh, God. That was, that was great, Alex. And that's why, that's why I love that statement. I think many years ago, I didn't understand what it meant when it says, why does culture eat strategy for breakfast? Some people say, why does culture eat strategy for lunch or whatever, whatever, however you want to say it. It essentially means that, you know, you could have all the strategy in the world and you could have amazing ideas, but if the culture is not accepting of those strategies and ideas, it goes nowhere. And I think that's what you see a lot of organizations fail because of what you said, the culture, it's always been that way. And then it continues and continues and continues as a status quo level. Nobody wants that change. There's so many resistance and these massive, large organizations, you're fight, you're pushing it up against a culture that's just been like that for so long. And unfortunately, there's a lot of cultures that, and in private and government organizations that are just not healthy, but it's, it's, and there's been leaders that have come in with all these great strategies and it goes nowhere, right? And have you seen that when you've met some leaders that they didn't realize it was the culture, but they had all these great ideas, but they didn't realize it was the culture that needed to be worked on first? Oh, yeah. In, in fact, just about every leader I know, and we do a lot of work with leaders transitioning into new jobs or new roles in a large organization, you know, they get promoted and now they're put over this division. And the, the 
first thing everybody wants to do is say, okay, here's why what you're doing was messed up and here's my ideas to fix it. That is a trap. That is a very seductive trap that people fall into because nobody wants, first, nobody wants to be told what they've been doing is wrong. Even if they think it's been wrong, you know, the positioning of it is basically I'm the savior. I'm the smart one. Nobody could figure this out except for me. So, and it ignores, you know, the, the organizational carrots and sticks that exist. And you, you, when you are a boss and you walk in with all these ideas, you're basically saying, I think I know the solution without actually knowing the problem. And, uh, my, my mom is a doctor, a physician, and she'll say, you know, um, prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. So as a leader, the first thing you have to do for the first three months, this is our kind of core game plan is you have to go on a series of, of listening meetings, you know, call it a listening tour. And the best leaders take a systematic approach to listening. And they ask a core set of questions. They meet with people at every level. They record the data they're hearing. You know, it's easy to ask questions, but if you ask questions and then don't do anything with it, what's the point? So they record the data, they get it in writing, they follow up, they say, hey, this is what I heard. This is what everyone's telling me. Now, here are the things that I'm going to do based on what you've said. And the more you can connect what your game plan and your action is back to what people have told you, the better. You know, here's the great irony. It's not likely going to be any different than what you would have done in the first place. But by taking the time to ask people to listen, you show that you are showing deference uh, and respect um, and an understanding that there needs to be buy-in. People need to uh, be bought in. And one of the things we'll often say is uh, people need the opportunity to weigh in before they can be expected to buy in. Um, I think that's not uh, the common practice, but it's certainly something I've, I've seen be successful. This is going to be a tough question for you, Alex. I, I know you're used to these. So I want to give yeah, it bring them on. Okay. How do you deal with and motivate a bad employee or a bad leader or manager, however you want to put it? So, um, well, I, I think I just say, you know, this is something you and I talked about uh, on my podcast. And, and I think there's a lot of insight that you shared. Um, so for anyone who, who likes this question, and wants to hear Fig's response. There's a core set. Um, but my, my first reaction is, you know, how do you define bad? Because I think there's a perception that, you know, being a bad leader or bad employee, you know, does that mean underperforming? That's one set of responses. Or does that mean lacks integrity and doesn't share the organizational values? So I'll, I'll start with that, just a quick word. If someone lacks integrity, if someone doesn't share organizational values, that's not something you're going to change. That's something that you have to um, ensure that, that you follow the accountability mechanisms so that that person isn't in the organization anymore. Because that kind of toxic behavior, you know, if someone's discriminatory or abusive, um, it's, it's just not worth your time trying to enlighten this individual. 
Um, and if that's your boss, then uh, my coaching would be, well, have you considered other opportunities? Um, but now let's go to the other de definition of bad, which is, you know, underperforming or ineffective. So uh, the first thing uh, you want to do if someone is not performing at the level you think they should is try and figure out what are the root causes and what are the symptoms of those causes. Oftentimes, uh, employee underperformance is the uh, symptom of things going on at home, of, uh, you know, maybe they've had a tough uh, experience. Maybe they've been burned before. Or, or poorly treated. Uh, and you talked a lot about psychological safety. So making sure you're listening to this person without agenda to really understand where they're coming from so that you can tailor and design whatever solution to their, to their needs and to their motivations. Um, so when managing someone who is a bad leader, bad employee, you know, the first thing you have to understand is, What'll work for you won't necessarily work for them. Um, the second thing you have to understand is, you know, how much energy am I in, in going to invest? And what is the outcome I want to get this person to? You know, you can't turn everybody into a high achiever. You can't turn every bad employee into uh, a top employee. And, uh, and making sure that you're just very clear about what is the ultimate objective you're trying to achieve. If you're just trying to get them to play ball or say the right thing, great. Uh, if you uh, have higher ambitions than that, then you really need to make sure you're in it for the long haul. Um, I'll answer this one final way in, you know, what if I work on a team and my team's great, the organizational values are great, but there's another department or another team and, you know, the leader there, um, maybe they don't lack integrity, but they're not collaborative or they have different objectives. You know, how do you navigate around or through that person? Um, my number one go-to response is you have to make sure that you are building relationships, strengthening uh, connections so that if someone in the organization is talking bad about you, is putting you down, is, is, you know, rumoring, gossiping that you've building up credibility with others so that this person doesn't uh, affect the perception of you throughout the organization. Um, it's not easy. And sometimes you find yourself thinking, why am I spending all this time just trying to outmaneuver or outflank this individual? Uh, but you have to align your input to the desired output. And if that's not an environment you want to work in or the type of people you want to work in, then you need to recognize that and, and say, okay, well, how can I get myself out of this situation? Do I leave the team? Do I leave and go to a new company um, or something in between? Oh, I, I love that answer. I absolutely love that answer because I think, like you said, you might have somebody undermining you, but if, if you lose credibility with your own management team because of those things, then it can really undermine the entire, well, it, it, under, it, it undermines the, vi the vision, the mission, everything else as part of it as part of the organizational structure, it starts to fall apart. I, I know it's a hot button topic. We, we talked about this in, 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 in part one, and I can't believe we're 39 minutes into this and I'm not going to hold you much longer than an hour. Um, so the question I have for you is, it seems to be COVID forced 
a lot of organizations to telework. A lot of organizations, and if you look at like Harvard Business Review and other reviews, they talked about teleworking being the future. So for a lot of organizations, it sped up this movement toward telework. For some companies, they weren't ready for it at all. So it was, it was a difficult transition, but there's systems in place now that I think we're in a lot better place than we were two years ago. And, and quite frankly, I can't believe the transition that happened that quickly, but I think sadly a pandemic forces that, right? Why is there so much resistance now to teleworking from a lot of executive managers? What is the resistance for them? So I will, well, I'll first say that um, like any problem, you know, neither the, of the extremes is, is ever the right answer. So I think balance is, is a key here. But to your point of, you know, why is it the dynamic that we see, you know, corporate senior level executives say we need to get back in the office. Uh, people on the front line um, are saying, hey, we are just as productive doing this remotely. And in fact, we're saving a lot of money by not going and not having a brick and mortar, whatever that is. You know, to me, that dynamic comes from a generational perspective. Um, you look at people in the workforce today, millennials who are under 40, um, millennials and Gen Z. And these are people who grew up with technology. Either they were born into it, like the Gen Zers who are just starting to enter into the workforce or younger millennials, or they uh, were exposed to uh, it in very early sort of stages of their maturity. So their aptitude, their comfort is going to be far more than people who, you know, the first time they heard about a computer, the computer took up the size of a full room. Um, now, is there a better or worse? I don't think there's a better or worse. There's just different. Uh, and we don't get to control when we're born. We just have to deal with what we got. So for people who grew up with technology, they're comfortable with it. You know, uh, I remember I was in like the third or fifth grade on instant messenger, you know, uh, and that has fed into this idea that I can communicate with someone texting on the computer, and it's just the same as if I'm in face-to-face. -face. Now, of course, you're missing some of the nuances, some of the, you know, uh, uh, expressions. That's why they came up with emojis, so you can get some of that. Uh, but then you have people at work saying, you know, don't emoji your boss. Uh, well, then how do you want me to express, uh, you know, body language or nuance in some of the things I'm saying? So this, this friction to me really comes, why do corporations organizations want remote work. Often it's because people at the top of the organization who are more experienced, uh, not just in work, but uh, are, are of an older generation. They need people around to do their best work. They're, they don't have the same skill set uh, digitally, nor to them is it really the same thing. Um, for baby boomers, uh, you know, the generation born between uh, 1946 and 1964, uh, baby boomers measured uh, success at work as being seen. The longer you were in the office, the more you were working. 
whether or not you were getting a lot done, I guess, isn't really relevant because uh, for that generation, being present, being on site was making an impact. And you'd hear this saying, oh, boy, you know, uh, that that Alex, he never leaves. You know, he's always working. Uh, this is why uh, it, you had parents of that generation not as present at home. Uh, but as uh, Gen X came onto the scene, you know, folks born between 65 and, and 79, 80, um, they started to see sort of the folly of that and recognize that work was only one part of your life. And Gen Xers, you know, the research shows are, are far more satisfied knowing that work is work. I want to leave when, I, when I'm going to leave. And um, then I want to have a, a healthy life when I go home. Um, and millennials now even more so around the, you know, find your passion, uh, but also make sure you have healthy work-life balance. Um, but with generations, the pendulum swings. And I think with some of the younger generation now, Gen Z, um, younger millennials, you know, you see this sort of grind set mentality of you should have a job and a side hustle and a side hustle to your side hustle. Um, and so it's ironic that you know, the older generation saying, get back to work. When the reality is people who work from home probably work more because of the convenience and they can just sort of walk over to their desk and stop, start working. But the way that, that, you know, it's, it's harder to measure that because the person's not there sitting in front of you. You're not seeing them, you know, burn the, the, the midnight oil. And, and so you don't really understand, you know, what are they doing? But yeah, people actually work more. It's, it's a little bit like companies that say you have unlimited vacation. They see that people take less vacation because it's, it's unlimited. Uh, yet if people get sort of an allotment, they're going to use it every year because they, they know that they have to use it. So it's a, a little bit of a paradox, but I, I think that generational perspective is, is really coming into play. Yeah, that's great insight. I, I love that. I love what you were talking about, the vacation portion of it. And, and most of the people that I know that telework, I mean, the studies have indicated this too, you know, that people that telework tend to work longer and um, are more focused because many times when, when they're in your work setting, and this is not downplaying the importance of, of, of like you said, social interactions, is, you know, you have, sometimes you have people, you get into an hour conversation with somebody that they could have been doing work instead of doing the work you know, they're having these conversations with everybody. But when they're at home, like you said, you know, many of the people I speak with, you know, they typically work, you know, typically they worked eight to five. Well, when they worked at home, guess what they get on the computer computer at 630 or seven. Um, and, and then they get off later or they keep the computer on till 11 o'clock at night, you know, and at work, they would just shut it off and come home. So, you know, it just depends. And I, and I think it goes back to what you said is this in the, before you and I talked about in podcast one, which was making sure you had good quality employees, because like you said, traditionally people want to say, well, I see them at the office all the time. Well, that doesn't necessarily have a correlation with what they're doing at work. They could be at work that whole time socializing, or they could be doing other things. So I, I, I don't think it equals output. And like you said, I think the most important thing is what metrics are you using to measure outputs? If they're doing their work, completing the work on time, 
what are those outputs are, are the most significant portion. But sometimes I hear um, some folks will say, I just want to see him there. Or, and it goes back to that psychological safety and trust. If you're a leader that doesn't trust your employees, how does that ring true? And how does that communicate? Um, I guess your importance in the value of those employees, if you don't have the trust that they're actually doing the work they're supposed to do. I mean, do you see that in your own work or how does that translate into work, into work performance and product productivity in terms of what you see? Well, I think an element of it is, is trust totally, you know, I know that, um, you know, we have a, a an admin in our office. She's terrific. Um, and I know that if, you know, she walks in five minutes late or something, that she's going to make up that time elsewhere, even if it's 15 minutes, even if it's 20, you know. Um, part of it is you just trust people that they have and care about the work. Uh, and everyone kind of has a standard of they want to bring their best if you've created the right environment for that. So how do you create the right environment for that? You know, you, you can't kid yourself to think and, and think, you know, you're, you're a ultra motivated and passionate person. I imagine you're out, you know, mowing the lawn and you're passionate about getting every corner and, you know, every blade of grass with a measuring stick. You can't kid yourself to think every single person's going to be like that, but everybody is motivated by something. Uh, even if that something is being able to pay their bills and being able to make more money in the future. Um, so being able to connect people's motivations to the work and knowing that you've created an incentive structure that you can trust they will follow through on whatever you've identified because you've tethered it back to what they're interested in. That's one. But I, I think the second on an organizational leader le leadership level is you have to have clear direction and um, often leaders are very interested in getting in there and, you know, you hear it. Oh, he, you know, I want to be the kind of leader that rolls up their sleeves and, and gets in there with my people. Why would you do that? Because isn't, you know, isn't that micromanaging? Uh, you should be doing your job. And if you're doing their job, then who's doing yours? So, uh, People need to be at a leadership level, create the picture of what you're striving toward, show everybody how what they're doing connects to the bigger picture, and then connect what they're doing back to, to the bigger picture of their lives so you can be confident that they're motivated to do uh, a high-quality job, even if you know the connecting of the widgets isn't their passion. Uh, this opportunity helps further their passion and get them closer to uh, their ultimate, you know, picture of whatever uh, uh, the vision of their life is. So here's my, I want to see your final tough question here, and I'm going to ask you some personal questions. Um, why is micromanaging detrimental to organization? And if you're a person that finds yourself micromanaging, how, what can you do to not micromanage? Well, well, first and foremost, let me ask, why is micromanaging so common? Micromanaging is so common because people are promoted based on their aptitude or skill doing the job. And as soon as they're promoted, everything that they were the best at immediately becomes the wrong thing to do because they have a new job now. 
So micromanaging is so common because people like doing what they're good at. And when you get promoted, the job you're good at is the job of the people now who work for you. So recognizing first and foremost that that, that is a, a fact, that that exists, is the first step to overcoming it. Uh, number two, uh, if you're a micromanager, how do you get away from it? I think it comes from starting to accept that struggle is a key part of learning. And adults don't like to struggle. The more experience, the more expertise you get, the less you like to struggle. Because, oh, I've worked 25 years. I, I shouldn't be struggling with this. But if you're not struggling, you're not learning. And if you find your job easy every day with no struggle, I mean, it may be hard, it may be taxing, but no struggle, it's a good sign that you're just perpetuating your own status quo. Um, so if you find yourself micromanaging, it's a good sign that you're doing uh, what you're good at, and that's the exact wrong thing to do. Um, we often use a guideline of you know 25% of your time should be spent managing up the people above you and, and doing their job as opposed to, you know, managing down. Um, that's a little uncommon for people because, well, I manage my team. I don't manage my boss. Well, um, yeah, uh, if you find yourself in this position, asking for feedback from your team, saying, you know, what do you think I do well as a manager? What are some things you think I could do to improve? and have them structure their answers in things to do more of and things to do less of. Uh, and then make sure you act on those things. And, and if you find that they're telling you, you spend too much time you know, managing the work product and not enough time communicating the vision or developing and mentoring, um, that's a sign. And so to, your, to the other part of that question, you said, why is micromanaging detrimental to organizations? Because if everybody's micromanaging one level down, then who is doing the job of the leader? Nobody. And so uh, leadership requires a different set of skills, a different set of outcomes. And people aren't promoted from the front lines because they're good managers. They're promoted because they're best at that job. Uh, and what is required for them to um, continue to get better is, is learning, and interest in learning and recognizing you know, the famous Marshall Goldsmith book, what got me here won't get me there. And if I want to really continue to ascend, I have to continue to develop my skills, uh, whether it be through learning, classes, podcasts, whatever it is, um, constantly wanting to get better. Because as an organization, if everybody's micromanaging, you're constantly going to be behind the curve because all you're doing is reacting to problems instead of taking time to be proactive, anticipating, connecting people's work to their organizational vision mission and developing the people beneath you to hopefully, you know, rise with you as you continue to go up in the organization. Oh man. I love that. I can listen to this forever, man. I think I said that to you before. I think this is why it's, we're on hour two now. So I got, I'm going to do my rapid fire questions here. Um, who is your favorite leader and why? Uh, well, I think the, you know, the first answer, of course, would be my my mentor, um, boss, and father, Rick. Uh, you know, Rick is um, just profound in so many ways, and so I 
I think that's an easy answer. It's also the true answer. You know, um, if I were to go historically, who are some of my favorite leaders? Um, I, I think, uh, I'm going to draw on, um, one of my, uh, historical, you know, I don't know that, uh, they're a, a favorite, but there's someone I definitely think about in terms of leadership a lot, which is Harry Truman, president. And, uh, you know, Harry Truman went from a farmer uh, after he got back from World War One, you know, in his late 20s or 30s to the vice president in like 20 years. And when uh, he was selected as the vice president, um, Roosevelt didn't really want him. He just wanted what he brought to the ticket. And. Um, and then when President Roosevelt died toward the end of the Second World War, Harry Truman was about as far out of the loop as you could be. And then he was thrust into, you know, the biggest, brightest spotlight you could be into. And um, what I what I respect about Harry Truman is he had a, a lot of incredibly hard decisions uh, that he had to make very quickly without really knowing who he could trust. You know, especially around how to end the war, peace negotiations. Uh, and so um, leaders grappling with hard problems is always very interesting. And Truman, to me, is someone, a, a fascinating historical figure. Whether you like him or not, whether you agree with his decisions or not, um, being able to learn from what he had to learn the hard way uh, is something I've gotten a lot out of. Your favorite guilty pleasure food-wise... Uh, my favorite guilty pleasure food wise, um, you know, line up the usual suspects, pizza, uh, uh, big popcorn fan, uh, easy Mac, uh, was what I snuck in uh, lunch today. Um, I also, uh, I'm a big steak fan, you know, steak and potatoes. There's nothing, uh, nothing better. I don't know if that's guilty food, but those are some of my favorite foods. Favorite music and favorite movie. Uh, my favorite movie is The Godfather, uh, part one, um, an all time uh, depiction of, you know, um, I love history. So uh, history, uh, family, uh, hard decisions uh, and very good quotable movie, which, uh, as I'm sure, you know, resonates with me uh, in terms of music. Uh, I am, uh, you know, big into the classics, um, uh, big Beatles fan. Um my first favorite band was The Doors uh, in like the sixth grade. I don't think I quite understood the music, but uh, I like the way it sounded. Um, so yeah, uh, Beatles, I would say, is my, my all-time favorite band. So what's on your bucket list? Uh, so you could choose one thing, that, one place or something that you want to do that you have not done. Obviously, you're like, oh, I'm kind of scared to do it, but I'm going to do it. Um. I would say, uh, you know, uh, being a father, uh, which, uh, as you know, uh, I get to do starting in September. So uh, my wife is pregnant. Uh, very exciting. Um, I would say on a professional level, um, uh, writing a book, co-authoring a book with uh, with Rick is definitely on my bucket list. Uh, and then sort of on a on a personal, you know, Alex centric uh, travel. Uh, I want to go to the city of uh, Istanbul. Uh, super fascinated with the, the history, the sort of fusion of, of East and West. And that's uh, definitely a trip on my bucket list. 
And I and I know you've heard this a million times. You say, I, I can't believe Faye's going to do this to me. What do you want to be remembered for? What was that? What do you want to be? What do you want to be remembered for? Mm. Um, as a, a a good listener, uh, as someone who who did the right things, um, the right ways, uh, not because someone was watching, but because it was the right thing to do. Um, you know, as someone who, who helped people, and uh, not just like help them across the street or help them move, but help them accomplish uh, their goals and, and live a better, more fulfilled life. Um, and I think that's, you know, personally and professionally, um, someone who, who, you know, is there for people when they need them, uh, even if it's not always telling them what they want to hear. Uh, but I've learned, you know, to go back to what we started with, just make sure they're ready for what I have to say uh, and, and pick my shots um, so that when I, when I do say it, they actually hear me instead of just, you know, listening. And any book you would recommend anybody read in terms of leadership and if they're, they're a leader in an organization, because our listeners are going to be from all over the world, what's a good book or resource for someone to become a better leader? Uh, well, there's a book that has shaped a lot of the way I think. Um, it's called, and I saw um, the author uh, in grad school, uh, James Pennybaker. So the book is called The Secret Life of Pronouns, What Our Words Say About Us. And uh, what it talks about is how articles, you know, the connector words of, of our speech and language reveal far more than we think they do. And that uh, what I love about it, and, and he's fascinating when I saw him speak, he created a language uh, processing system that they analyze speeches and emails and all sorts of things. And um, they can basically tell you things that you're focused on or that you think about. You know, one thing um, I always remember is in emails, the person who uses I more, who says I more, uh, they showed in their book is lower on the power dynamic. So uh, they studied um, emails between students and professors. And based on how many eyes someone said in their email, they could typically determine who was the student, who was the professor. Um, because, you know, you think you email your boss, hey, boss, how are you doing? I was hoping I could work on this project. I had this idea. Uh, this is kind of what I wanted to do. And I've worked with these people to get some data. And your boss says, sounds good. Go for it. Um, so anyways, The Secret Life of Pronouns is uh, pretty profound. Uh, it's not necessarily a leadership book, but it uh, helps you understand communication better. And, and that's a lot of what leadership is about. Okay. And this is, uh, and, and I want to tell everybody, thank you so much for listening today. Alex, you've been amazing. You've taken so much of your time today, and I'm so appreciative for it. How do people um, get in contact with you for, at your consulting company? Uh, how would they reach out to you? What's your website? And then also give your podcast information again. Sure. So uh, if you want to get in touch, uh, you can, of course, reach out through our website, which is uh, iedlv.com. Uh, that's iota echo delta lima viper.com. Uh, you can also add me on LinkedIn. Uh, and the podcast is available on uh, all platforms where you listen. Uh, you can search 
uh, my name, Alex Cully, or uh, the name of the podcast, Learning the Hard Way, the Easy Way. And uh, we have a lot of fun. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, I, I really do the podcast for myself uh, because I get a lot of all the people uh, I interview and talk to. And uh, if, if just one person uh, gains some, something from it as well, uh, I think we've been successful. Yeah, he here. And until next time, everybody, Alex, thank you so much. Keep learning, everybody. Keep working hard. And until next time, and our next wonderful guest, take care and thank you.